0: Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. The sermon text this morning is in Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 23. You can follow along in your Bible, or you can look in the order of worship, where we have that text, in the order of worship, it makes the structure of this passage very clear. We're going to be reading three incidents, and then each of them will end the same way with a fulfillment utterance, where we get a, a reference to the prophecy that is fulfilled by these actions. So hear the word of the Lord. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children, They refuse to be comforted because they are no more. But When Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. He rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. When he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Being warned, in a dream he withdrew to the district of Galilee. He went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Father, we ask that as the words of the prophets were fulfilled, we too would live in anticipation of the fulfillment of all of your promises. Speak to us now through your word, in Christ's name, amen. It's easy sometimes when you're looking at narrative passages of Scripture like this to miss the big picture because the details are so interesting. So I want to give you the big picture right at the beginning so that we can kind of keep ourselves oriented about what the central tension in this story, in this series of events, is all about. There's two things that we need to distinguish between. On the one hand, there's the terror of God not showing up. The idea of God not showing up when he's needed, or God abandoning his people, that's on the one hand. On the other is the reality of the discipline, of God preparing his people, preparing you for your calling. On the one hand, the fear that God won't show up. On the other, the reality of God's discipline in preparing us for our calling. We often mistake the discipline are not showing up and when we do that we are avoiding the reality of the cross. And when you look at the events, there's a lot of action going on. There's a lot of stuff happening. There's the flight to Egypt, there is the massacre of the innocents, and then there is a return and eventually a settlement of the holy family in Nazareth. And each of those three events, as you can see, is structured in a certain way where Matthew tells us the story, he gives us what happened, and then he concludes that episode by telling us this happened to fulfill the prophecy. And then he cites a prophecy. So when we read about the flight to Egypt, that ends with a citation of Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. When we read about the massacre of the innocents, we end with a citation of Jeremiah 31, verse 15. And even the third episode, the return to Israel, the settlement in Nazareth, that ends with kind of a general citation, according to the prophets, without mentioning specifically which one that we're talking about. The thing about it is, if you were to go back and look at these prophecies in context, if you went back to Hosea 11, you went back to Jeremiah 31, and you read them, with the idea of what fulfillment is, usually in our minds, you would say to yourself, Matthew, I'm not sure if if you got this one right. Because if you go back to Hosea 11, Hosea 11 is not saying, well, one day when the Messiah comes, he's going to have to flee to Egypt. But don't worry, I will call him out of Egypt. That's not what's happening in Hosea 11. In Hosea 11, it's not a future event that's being referred to at all. It's a past event. It's the deliverance of God's people out of Egypt in that founding narrative in the Pentateuch. And what happens in the book of Exodus, that's what's been referred back to. And the reason why is because in Hosea's age, the people are going back into exile. And so they're being reminded of the nature, the love of God, that his people have found themselves in exile before. And when they were in exile, he brought them back. That's what's happening in Hosea chapter 11 you look in Jeremiah 31 15 this is really interesting because of course the Rachel who is referred to in this prophecy we're familiar with from the book of Genesis but by the time this prophecy was written Rachel was long dead she had died long ago the events that are being described here like Rachel's tears are what we might think of as almost a poetic device What's being referred to here is like the lamentation, the weeping of this matriarch of the people at the thought of their eradication, again, through exile. As they're carried away, that carrying away into exile is tantamount to their destruction, their being no more. And so Jeremiah is actually referring to these feelings that people are having in exile, this, this mourning, lamentation that they're having. In exile. But in the same way that Hosea refers to terrible events, exile, but does so in a spirit of hope because God brought the people out of Egypt, Jeremiah as well is hopeful. You get this mourning, this weeping for the people carried off. But Jeremiah 31 is the chapter, a few verses after this, where the new covenant is unveiled, which is a covenant abounding in hope. So in the midst of the tragedy of exile, there is an assurance of deliverance. The final citation is actually kind of difficult because the question is, what exactly is Matthew referring to? There is not an Old Testament prophet who comes out and says, the Messiah is going to be born in Nazareth and will be called a Nazarene. So scholars try to interpret what's going on. Some will say, ah, I get it. This is a reference to Judges chapter 13, when the parents of Samson, when Samson is born, and it said that the child will be a Nazarite, right? Nazarite, that sounds like Nazareth. So maybe this is a sense in which Solomon is a type of Christ, and now these words spoken of Solomon are being referred to uh, Christ as the fulfillment of them. Others say, no, 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 there's, there's not a... a Etymological connection between Nazarite and Nazareth, uh, that just sounds similar, but they're not connected. Instead, what's going on here is, it's like when Isaiah talks about the Messiah and how he will be meek and lowly. He will be despised and rejected. Well, Nazareth was, was this trashy little town that people had no respect for the bumpkins who came from Nazareth. We even get this in John's Gospel when it turns out that, that Jesus is from Nazareth. The question is, can anything good come out of Nazareth? It's a rhetorical question. The assumption is no, nothing good can come out of Nazareth. And so the idea there is just as we were told he would be humble, that he would be lowly, sure enough, his family moves to Nazareth, and he grows up in Nazareth, which is about the lowest of the low. Of course, those interpretations, that's speculative. Some of the certainty to us is lost. But but still, we get this sense of Matthew once again doing the thing where he's reminding us of the fulfillment of prophecy. So he's connecting Old Testament and New Testament. But at the same time, we're seeing that, that all of these citations of fulfillment work very differently than what we think of as fulfillment. Like Matthew's sense of what it means to fulfill something is much broader, much deeper than ours. Like Jesus is the fulfillment of the hope that God's people would be delivered from spiritual exile. And so Jesus' life mirrors that reality. Jesus himself becomes an exile who then returns from exile in Egypt. All of the prophecies center in context on God delivering his people despite the dire circumstances they find themselves in. The fact that the son called out of Egypt in its original context is Israel, the nation of Israel, but now Christ is spoken of as that son, as Israel, we begin to see that, that in the eyes of the gospel authors, the very history of the nation becomes a type of Christ. It becomes foreshadowing, or to borrow from the Westminster Confessions language when it refers to the Old Testament sacraments of circumcision and Passover, history foresignifies Christ to come. That The details of their history, their trials, what they went through, all of that stuff that we don't think of as, as prophetic predictions, that all of that was a kind of, Prediction, a kind of force signifying of the coming of Christ. And Christ in his life fulfilled, he brought to fullness all of that history. So fulfillment is not just Jesus checking the box on the big predictive prophecies. So that when the fulfillments are cited, we can say, yeah, he's the one. That's important. And oftentimes when Matthew talks about fulfillment, that is what he's getting at. Yes, Jesus is clearly the one who was prophesied. But sometimes what he means is this deeper thing, like the whole history of God's people, the whole history of the world has foreshadowed and prefigured this ultimate event. These fulfillments, in other words, if we reflect on them, lead us to see all of history With new eyes. To see it not just as random stuff that happens, but to see how God was working in it. There was a significance to it that we didn't appreciate until we looked back and in hindsight could recognize what it was that God was doing. But even the seemingly insignificant details of that history were ordained by God with a purpose, sign value, Of course, the history of the people, like our own personal histories, they have this significance, but only in hindsight. Like, nobody at the time going through these things was thinking, well, we're going into exile, but you know what? I figure this prefigures somehow God's ultimate plan in a way that's going to be really, you know, goosebump inducing once, you know, thousands of years from now, people read this in a book. Of course, no one had that sense. Just like you never have the sense when you're going through your exile, your struggle. That there is some deeper meaning in this, that God is doing some greater work, it's only as we look back and, and remember his promises that we can see this. In the moment of testing, it doesn't feel like assurance. In the moment of testing, it feels like terror. Because in the moment of testing, it feels like God isn't showing up when he promised to be here. The terror of God not showing up is something Joseph could have related to. The responsibility for caring for a child, for a newborn, is an awesome responsibility, a terrible weight. Um, I think of this especially today as I anticipate baptizing a little baby. Anytime I I think of that, I always think of all the things that could go wrong. And, And when I'm doing it, there are even more things that could go wrong than when a normal person would be handling a baby. Not to... Make you guys nervous. It's, it's worked fine in the past. I'm sure it'll be fine this time. But if you think about it, yeah. Like, a little baby is pretty helpless, pretty fragile, pretty susceptible to damage. And this is the reason why parents who, who were happy-go-lucky people, parents who were adventurous, risk-takers, suddenly have children. And that changes. And the parent who grew up essentially wild themselves becomes overprotective and is concerned if, if their, their child is out of their sight for a moment. And we all chuckle at that, but you understand, because it's a, it's a responsibility. And it's a responsibility even if the, the leader of your nation hasn't like, voiced a personal vendetta against your child. Like Even if the leader of your land isn't trying to kill your child, you feel it as a terrible responsibility. But in Joseph's case, the leader of his country is out to get his child. And the line of defense seems pretty thin to him. Here's a man who was willing to do what God directed him to do. Like he set aside all of the the potential concerns with marrying Mary, and he did it. And now he is the head of this household. He is responsible. He is leading them. He's responsible to protect them. How ill-equipped he must have felt to do that. Joseph and Mary both when you think about it must have felt so inadequate to the task. We look back and we revere them. We think of how how suited they were for this. They were chosen by God for this, but for them it must have felt very different. A very fragile and uncertain thing that had been placed into their hands. But at least God was on their side. They were getting messages from angels. So, they had some expectation that God was looking out for them, that God had a plan, that Herod would ultimately fail in his quest to put an end to the life of this child. I mean, if Herod came after this child, these angels could protect him. Right? An army of angels at his beck and call could intervene and could decimate Herod and his minions. Surely, if there was a threat, against this child, God would rise up and he would squash it, right? So Joseph must have felt, and it must have felt very strange when an angel comes to him in a dream and warns him and tells him of God's great plan for their deliverance, which is that he will run. That's it. That's God's plan. That's God's way of protecting the child. Take your wife, take your child, and flee. Run away so that you are not killed. He reflects on this moment in the life of Joseph. Calvin writes this. He says, The mind of Joseph must have been harassed by dangerous temptations when he came to see that there was no hope but in flight, for in flight there was no appearance of divine protection. If God places... A calling on your life. And as a result of that calling, you feel the whole world coming in against you. You feel like your, your life is in jeopardy and the life of those you love is in jeopardy. And when that jeopardy comes and God says, just run away. Just try to keep ahead of the reapers. Don't let them kill you. Go to Egypt. The place of bondage. You remember that place. Go there. Let Egypt be your refuge. Imagine the disappointment of Joseph in discovering this was God's plan. This is how God was going to deliver them. No angels would intervene. There would be no heavenly armies. He had to pack up his family and flee to Egypt. Salvation was up to him. If salvation was going to occur, Joseph would have to do the work. He thought it might be different, but after all, it's just the same. You don't have to imagine what it was like for Joseph to feel this way because you felt it as well. We've all been there before. We had expectations of God delivering us, protecting us, rewarding us, blessing us. And then it turned out God's plan was for us to do it ourselves. God's plan for us was just to run away. Where we expected the power of God to show up, we had to use our own strength. When we expected that we would advance and we would succeed, that we would conquer, instead we had to run away. We were mad at God because he didn't show up. He didn't protect us. We had to protect ourselves. That's what Calvin's referring to when he says the dangerous temptation that Joseph must have felt. That realizing that, that the future was up to him, that it was all in his hands, could he flee fast enough there would have been a temptation to think these thoughts and to wonder, where is God? Why isn't God showing up? But that's a temptation. That's a feeling. It's not reality because despite the appearance of no protection, in fact, what we see here is that God's protection takes many forms. But the way that God protects is the way that God works out salvation has a variety of ways of happening. Calvin says, this wonderful method of preserving the Son of God under the cross teaches us. When he says wonderful, he doesn't mean wonderful like awesome. He means wonderful like, I wonder that this would be God's plan. What it teaches us is this, that they act improperly who prescribe to God a fixed plan of action. Let us permit him to advance our salvation by a diversity of methods. And let us not refuse to be humbled that he may more abundantly display his glory. Above all, let us never avoid the cross by which the Son of God himself was trained from his earliest infancy. This flight is a part of the foolishness of the cross, but it surpasses all the wisdom of the world. And when he says, let us allow God a diversity of methods, he's saying in a much more sophisticated way something that we say by saying things like, don't put God in a box. Don't limit what God can do. Be open to the idea that the way that God works is various. And just because God isn't doing things the way you would like them to be done, or you expected them to be done, that doesn't mean God is not at work. Especially when God does things not the way you thought, but the way he said he would in his word. Let's not be surprised when God actually behaves the way that God behaves throughout all of Scripture. Furthermore, he says, let us not refuse to be humbled. Because the reality is that some of these means are humbling. That the plan of salvation, the way that God is working it out, doesn't always build us up. It often tears us down. That like Christ, we experience humiliations in anticipation of glorification. But don't refuse to be humble. Don't resent God for the humbling. Recognize it as part of our calling. That's what he means when he says, let us never avoid the cross. Let us never avoid the cross. He's speaking of the cross there in a very broad sense. Not just the cross of Christ where he died, but the sense in which the cross of Christ is our calling as well. Where Christ calls to us to take up our cross and follow him. In other words, when we suffer, when we must flee, when we must do things that humble us, enter into it as Christ entered into the suffering and the discipline of the cross. Because what's happening in those moments is not God abandoning us. What's happening is God disciplining, equipping, and preparing us for our calling which is exactly what he did in the life of Jesus. When we think about the cross, oftentimes we think of it as if the cross was this tragic turn at the end of the life of Christ. That things were going really well, like he was this popular teacher, he was saying all of this amazing stuff, but then that guy Judas betrayed him and he was falsely convicted and executed and, and that was really bad. And who saw that coming? Well, Jesus saw that coming. From the very beginning of his life, he had been preparing himself for the cross. Even as an infant, he was being prepared for the cross. From the beginning, the arc of his existence was bent toward the cross. It was his end, in the shorter catechism sense, his end as in his purpose or his telos. He was heading toward the work of the cross. And even here in his infancy, In these moments of of trauma as a little child, this too, the flight, the threats on his life, the anxiety of his humbling circumstances, all of this was part of the equipping that was taking place in the life of Christ. This is Calvin again. He says, We must always bear in mind the purpose of God in training his son from the commencement under the discipline of the cross because this was the way in which he was to redeem his church. He bore our infirmities and was exposed to dangers and to fears that he might deliver his church from them by his divine power and might bestow upon it everlasting peace. His danger was our safety. His fear was our confidence. Not that he ever in his life felt alarm, but as he was surrounded on every hand by the fear of Joseph and Mary, he may be justly said, have taken upon him our fears, that he might procure for us assured confidence. From the beginning, in other words, from his birth, Jesus never avoided the cross. Jesus was in a, a state of training, preparation throughout his life. The Father was equipping the Son to do the work of redemption. That's what the discipline of the cross means. What does the discipline of the cross mean for us? We don't have to do the work of redemption, the work that Jesus did, but we are called to live in the light of redemption, to follow after Christ. That means to bear one another's infirmities and burdens as he bears ours. It means to face up to danger and fear. as He did. It means to find confidence and assurance in him, not in ourselves, and to fulfill the calling on our lives, just as he fulfilled God's calling on his. When you consider Joseph's example, Joseph has lessons to teach us in the discipline of the cross. Joseph knew that just as there was a time to flee, there would be a time to return. He relied upon the word he received from the angels, and the angels told him, not just run, but when we tell you, come back. So he knew there would be a return. He could easily have neglected this knowledge that came to him from supernatural beings in dreams. He could have given end to those temptations. He could have resented the fact that God had given him this responsibility without seeming to equip him enough to be able to stand and fight and not have to run. But that's not how he reacted. He didn't ask, why do I have to leave home? Why do I have to run? Why do I have to seek refuge in the land of my enemies? Why do I have to turn my back on the temple, the presence of God, on the sacrifices that are a covering for my sin? Why do I have to leave the land of inheritance that was promised to me and my people and go to live in a land of pagans and exiles? Why me? He doesn't ask any of those things. In reacting that way, he would have been avoiding the cross avoiding the path that God had set him on. But instead, he fled when God told him to flee. He returned when God told him to return. The irony was that everything that Joseph was sacrificing, everything that he was leaving behind in fleeing to Egypt, the temple where God's presence was, those sacrifices, atoning for the sins of the people, the blessings that God had promised, everything he turned his back on, he was, in fact, carrying with him. And the person of the child, Jesus Christ, who was the fulfillment of all of those things in such a way that they all became meaningless and empty. Just signs pointing to him so that what Joseph was sacrificing, he would have recognized in hindsight was nothing at all in comparison to the gift that he carried even as he ran It must have seemed to him that the plan of salvation was balanced on the edge of a knife. It could go one way or it could go the other. But in reality, it was never uncertain. In reality, it was always clear. And this is what Matthew makes clear to us. That as we read the narrative and we see the fear and the uncertainty and the possibility of Herod's knife catching up to baby Jesus, we're constantly reassured with the words of the prophet. Oh, this happened to fulfill what had been spoken. This happened because of God's plan. What seemed in the moment desperate, in hindsight we recognize, was ordained by God. That's why Matthew records these moments. He gives us an account of these early uncertain days, but he gives them to us as episodes of fulfillment But even in moments when it would have been natural and easy to assume that the plan had gone off the rails, that things weren't working, like we're running, the the king of the Jews, King Herod, the king of the physical kingdom is on the warpath and we're fleeing from him instead of defeating him. It seemed so fraught and yet it was all happening according to God's plan and it was all part of God's way of equipping the king of the spiritual kingdom to rule and to reign. This terrifying moment of flight did not mean that God's plan was in jeopardy. And as strange as it sounds, what it really meant was that God's plan was coming to fruition, and to fullness. And the same thing is true for us. As we struggle to follow after Christ and we ask ourselves, why? Why do I have to run away when I want to advance? Why do I have to, to, to flee when I want to conquer Why do I have to endure hardship when I want blessing? And we're tempted to avoid the implications of the cross. In that moment, remember that Christ underwent the discipline of the cross, and he calls us to it as well. That this, too, is part of what God is doing. As you experience these setbacks, as you struggle to know how to respond, respond as Joseph did. Flee when he calls you to flee. Return when he calls you to return. Follow Christ wherever he lives. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.